Hi everyone, welcome to the third episode of the season 8 of the Productize podcast. This is the first part of a series of two podcasts recorded at the Radical Product Thinking Book Launch event, held online on October 14, 2021. The Productize podcast is a show where innovators, geeks, creators, and entrepreneurs come to discuss impactful ideas. Our mission is to inspire people to impactful action. My name is André Marquet, and I'll be your host. Okay, let's do this. So today's uh, session is really about Radical Dots. And Radical, let me just give a brief intro on Radical's bio um, and uh, before we actually start. So Radika, she's an entrepreneur and she's a product leader. She has participated in four acquisitions as a result of the products she built. And two of these uh, companies uh, were actually companies she founded herself. So she currently advises organizations from high-tech startups to government agencies um, on, on product thinking and vision leadership. She's the author of Radical Product Thinking. That's the book I have here with me today. And I guess some of you guys should have already uh, got it by now on your on your desks. And um, yeah, she, she just published the book. The book just came out. And the book gives readers a systematic approach for building successful products that bring about the change we want to see in the world. Uh, let me just say that Khadika graduated from the MIT and she has uh, also a master's in mechanical and electrical engineer. And she speaks nine languages while learning her tense, which is amazing. So Radika, before we actually start, let me remind people that we have a giveaway, which is super nice from you. Um, a 60-minute free consulting session with Radhika Dutt. So you can, you know, do a free consultation and understand how to craft a vision and a more compelling uh, story for your company, startup, project, idea, you name it. So stay until the end so you can compete on the raffle. And with no further ado, let me introduce actually ask Radhika here on our virtual stage. Hi, Radhika. Welcome. Hi. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, well. and I'm so excited to do this with you. Thank you so much. It's so, so nice uh, from you to uh, be available um, at this time of the day, and I know that in the U.S. it's still early. So um, hope you're well, and um, before we actually start, let me just ask you, I think that's kind of a curiosity of mine and maybe some people here in the audience, what drove you uh, to write the book and uh, what can you tell us really about, uh, about the, the, this, this uh, labor of uh, love, which is writing a book and having it now being shipped. So, so many people uh, are, are enjoying the book, including myself. Um, Tell us a little bit a, a little bit more about it, if you if you don't mind. Um, yeah, maybe I'll start with you know some of the experiences that led me to write the book. Um, you know, I think one of the hardest things about publishing is um, just you know it's hard to publish a book um, if fundraising is hard, right? Like publishing takes it to a whole new level. Um, but what really led me to want to write this book was uh, the fact that having been an entrepreneur, um, I had made so many mistakes along the way. Uh, and I felt like over the 20 year career that I've had, 
you know, I've really had to learn kind of how to build vision-driven products. Um, and it's it's really hard to uh, be successful as an entrepreneur uh, because, you know, you keep having to learn how to translate your vision into everyday action. And it's so easy to um, make a mistake along the way. You know, somewhere between the vision all the way to action, there's often a break in the chain. And that's where we see product diseases. Um, and my own experience has been that, you know, I've caught so many product diseases along the way. Um, in fact, you know, my first startup uh, right out of school, we were still in our dorm rooms at the time. Um, and we started a company that uh, we call Lobby 7. Uh, and our vision was to revolutionize wireless, right? Um, this was back in 2000. And I write about that in the book, but you know, that was the first experience I had with a product disease. Uh, I had caught hero syndrome, where it was all about, you know, go big or go home, scale fast. Um, and so, you know, this was the first experience with product diseases. And, you know, over time, I avoided that product disease to catch another one, for example. Um, and over the span of 20 years, you know, I had really learned a lot of how to build vision-driven products using intuition. But I found that, you know, even when I worked in other companies, um, there, I kept seeing the same pattern of product diseases, whether I worked in, you know, broadcast, media and entertainment, telecom, advertising, government even. It didn't matter which industry or size of company I kept seeing the same, um, the same pattern of diseases. And that's what drove me to write this book. It was a burning question saying, you know, is it that there are just a few leaders who can build uh, visionary products or, you know, can each of us build uh, visionary products and learn how to do that systematically? All right. I think you also have a, a, a little presentation that you have prepared for us. Is that correct? Yes, I do indeed. Great. So, um, yeah, if we can see it, by all means, I'm super curious um, to see what we have prepared, which is, I guess, a, like a, a small, uh, if, if I understood right, uh, it's a, a set of stories that are also told, uh, at least partially, or in a more, more extensive way in, in the book, correct? Exactly. I've told some of these stories, but here in this conversation, I think you get a deeper look into some of these stories and pictures, which always, you know, um, help as well in, in adding some color to the story. All right, let's let's go. Uh, we are seeing your presentation correctly, so let's do it. Excellent. Okay, so let's start this with an exercise, right? Um, in chat, just feel free to share the first name of a visionary that comes to mind, someone who has had an impact on this world. Um, just don't be shy. Just feel free to throw out the first name that comes to mind. So here, here on the chat, or shall we just voice the names? Yeah, actually, just voice them. Go for it. Feel free to unmute yourself. All right. Grace Lee Boggs. That's uh, Elon Musk. That's Mihai. I'm where I'm. I'm wondering. Steve Jobs, Paul Gaudencio, Jeff hey. Bezos, Arshnur. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing. Right. Um, and I think what we see is a pattern. This is. Um, oh, great! I love the fact that we're also thinking about um, people from other parts of the world. Um, Galileo. Great. Um, so let's 
I love the fact that we have uh, all these different names popping up, right? But here's a pattern that I want to share that I'm seeing, right? Um, whether it's Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Gandhi, uh, you know, all of these names, it, it feels like there's this set of um, just rare visionary leaders that we feel like, you know, those are the kind of people who create change in the world. Um, and, and by the way, very often, um, these leaders seem to be mostly white and mostly male. That's kind of how we think about visionaries. Um, and I really wanted to challenge this view because, you know, society really teaches us that our impact has to be heroic so that, you know, that's when you get recognized as a visionary. We've really learned that, you know, that's what it means to be a visionary. You have to be one of these rare set of leaders. And the problem with that view, right, is that the rate at which we change the world ends up being this very small trickle. Um, instead, you know, if each of us could really create change in the world very systematically, this is the rate at which we could really change the world. But unfortunately, right, until now, what has happened is the methodologies or business books, they've really emphasized um, using speed and trial and error to be able to create change, right? We haven't really learned a methodology about how can each of us be visionaries? We haven't learned the step-by-step -step process of how do you build change very systematically? Um, and that was what I felt was missing in the world, right? What we've learned in terms of the mantras for product uh, management or building products for scaling companies, it's these main ideas. It's the idea of build, test, learn, scale. Just try things in the market, see what works. Um, fail fast, learn fast. Maybe you have to move fast and break things along the way. But above all, right, what we've learned is you have to iterate quickly. Um, and here's the problem with iterating quickly. Um, iterating fast, it's like having a fast car. It's wonderful to have a McLaren. It's wonderful to have a Ferrari. This is not a criticism of going fast. But the reality is, Speed alone is not enough. It's good to have speed in execution, uh, but when we step back for a moment, right, we realize that a fast car is only really useful when you know where you're going. Because when you only have speed, speed can look like this, where you just have arrows pointing all different directions. What really matters is direction, right? Because when we just have all of us pointing in different directions, but moving fast, uh, what we catch uh, is what I call product diseases. And so here, you know, I wanna share with you some of the product diseases that I've seen. Um, and, you know, let's do a checkup where feel free to share if you've seen some of these product diseases, right? Um, the first one that I told you about that I'd caught was hero syndrome, but this is so common in startups where, especially with uh, venture funded startups, you know, we often confuse raising funding uh, with success, right? You often see startups that have raised millions and millions, um, and we often think that that's what success means for a startup. Um, very often, you know, it's all about let's scale fast, go big or go home. Um, and that's hero syndrome. Obsessive sales disorder is where, you know, this is one that I've contributed to myself. This is where, you know, we, um, uh, our salesperson comes to us and says, you know, if you just add this one custom feature, uh, we can even win this big mega client. And so we say, you know, that sounds mostly harmless. Let's do it. Uh, and pretty soon, you know, your entire roadmap is driven by just uh, features that you have to make good on for your customers that you've promised, right? We often think that 
uh, being customer centric is being lean and agile and giving customers what they want. And that ends up leading to obsessive sales disorder. So when we're just focused on speed by being lean and agile, we often catch this disease. This next one is pivotitis, right? And if you're a startup, you almost always have caught pivotitis. And I can share one example of a startup where I'd caught pivotitis. Our startup was uh, trying to be the next visa of the world. And at the time I was heading up marketing. Um, and, you know, we started off trying to be this next visa, but we realized that's a really hard problem to solve because you have to win both um, merchants and you have to acquire consumers as well. So we said, you know, that's really hard. We're going to pivot. So we pivoted to being a credit solutions company for merchants. Um, but that was eventually, you know, before then, we also tried to be a loyalty solutions provider for merchants. And, you know, as the head of marketing, I was creating brochures and a website. And honestly, I just didn't even know what to write in our brochures anymore. Like, what am I asking people to sign up for? Right? That's a classic case of pivotitis. When you feel like you're going after that next shiny object. And one more disease I'll talk about is narcissist complex. This is one where, you know, we're often looking inwards. We're thinking about what our business needs, our own goals for the business. Um, and I think the worst case of narcissist complex that I've come across is, you know, the head of a hospital group was saying, you know, for us to be successful, we need patients to come back often, right? In fact, we forget kind of in focusing on our goal, own goals, what it actually means for our users. And in this case, it meant that they had to be sick all the time. So that's narcissist complex. Um, but these are just a few of the, the seven diseases that I talk about in the book, you know, and these diseases are so common, it really doesn't matter what industry you're in. It's just really easy to catch them. Uh, these diseases, they happen when we're being iteration led, when our iterations are not driven by a really clear vision and strategy, which is basically when we have a fast car, but we're not really clear about where we're going and how to get there. And so, you know, what we really need um, is not just speed, but we need direction to our speed. And as we know from high school physics, right, this is where if you have speed plus direction, that's when you have velocity. So we're all pointing in the right direction. Um, and, and this is how we can actually create change, uh, build better products. And so radical product thinking is about a methodology so that we can build these world-changing products. Um, and the book really gives organizations a very step-by-step -step and practical approach for building uh, these world-changing products. What I mean by this step-by-step -step practical approach is that, you know, instead of just being iteration-led and where we say, let's just try things in the market and see what works, we take this systematic approach to engineering change, which means starting with a really clear vision for what's the end state we want to create, then translating it into a strategy, then into a set of priorities that reflect our vision and strategy in our uh, execution, um, then finally, execution measurement, where we're measuring what matters. And then we can apply all of these ideas also in engineering the culture that we want in our organization. But most importantly, right, all of these steps in radical product thinking, they're designed as tools so that we can communicate with our teams and bring everyone with us on the journey. And I want to give you a flavor for this, right? Uh, because all of these are words that we've heard before. We've heard that we need a vision, but if we think about, you know, just what we've learned about what a vision is, the reason this is called radical product thinking is because these are radical ideas. I want to challenge 
how, everything that we've learned in terms of conventional wisdom. The first thing that we've learned about a good vision, right, is that a good vision has to be a BHAG. Like if you've ever raised funding, the VC normally asks you, so what's your big, hairy, audacious goal? And that's the first thing we have to kind of discard in terms of conventional wisdom that we've learned. A vision does not have to be a big, hairy, audacious goal. Um, in fact, you know, what happens often is we have big, hairy, audacious goals like this. Here is the vision statement of a public company. It says contributing to human progress by empowering people to express themselves, right? Um, when you have a vision like this, it just turns out that anything fits against this vision, right? And in fact, um, I could use this vision to describe my kid's piano teacher. She is empowering my kids to express themselves and therefore contributing to human progress. So it could be the vision for my kid's piano teacher, but this could also be the vision for a company that's making post-it notes uh, because you know, we use post-it notes to let people express themselves in meetings. Whether you're making, you know, whether you're teaching piano or post-it, making post-it notes, if this vision fits, then it's not acting like a good North Star. It's not acting like a filter where you can actually hold up your vision against this and say, you know, should I do this or not? The answer to everything, right, is a yes. Um, and in fact, like this is having such a broad vision is often the root of so many product diseases. I mentioned hero syndrome in my very first startup. Our vision I mentioned to you was, you know, revolutionizing wireless. So often we see vision statements that start like this, you know, to disrupt or to empower, to uh, be the leader in blah, blah, right? So instead of this being a vision, you know, the radical approach to a vision is being really detailed about what is a good vision. A radical vision really states What's the problem you want to solve and how are you going to solve it? Um, and that means you have to answer five questions that are really deep and profound questions to answer. It's the who, what, why, when, and how questions. So the first one is, you know, whose world are you setting out to change? What does their world look like? Meaning, what exactly is their problem? The third question is probably the most important one to me, which is, why does that world need changing? Meaning, why is the status quo completely unacceptable? Because if it's not unacceptable, maybe there's no reason for your product to exist. Then finally, we can say, when will you know that you've arrived? Meaning, um, what does the world look like when you can say mission accomplished? And then finally, this is where we can talk about our technology or our approach. How are you going to bring about this world? Right? And what I've found is, whenever we even know that you have to answer this who, what, why, when, how questions, the problem is when you start with a blank sheet of paper, you end up playing vision bingo. So unless you want to play vision bingo as a team and end up with the same vision that you started with, what you really need is a different approach, a more radical approach. Um, and that's why the radical vision worksheet has this fill in the blank statement so that you're not stuck in the words um, on, you know, just finding the right words to express yourself. Instead, you're focusing on the concept. Um, and so here's what that radical vision statement would sound like, right? Um, using this fill in the blank statement. And rather than, answer, uh, I'll show you an example of this in action. Um, and we'll do that as part of an example. Because what I really wanna do now is now that I've given you a flavor for why these, these are some radical ideas that challenge conventional wisdom, I really wanna stretch our thinking in terms of product. Um, I wanna stretch our thinking in terms of what does it mean to build a world-changing product? 
And the way I want to do this is using the example of uh, an organization that makes papadams. Now, if you're familiar with papadams, they're the lentil crackers that you eat in Indian restaurants. Um, and so the thing that you don't know probably is that there is one organization that has 60% market share in papadams. Um, and this organization has revenues of over $200 million um, and is owned by 45,000 women who are all equal partners in this organization. So I want to tell you a little bit about, you know, how this organization is so vision driven um, and kind of how they've created this product that now has 60% market share. It was founded in 1959 by seven women, right? Um, and these women, they came together because they lived in a really patriarchal society and they wanted to earn a dignified living. They just uh, didn't want to be dependent on their husbands. And what they wanted was, you know, to be able to uh, contribute to the household income and have a say in household spending so that they could educate their kids. But the problem was they were all, you know, semi-literate. They didn't have good job prospects because, you know, they, they barely were literate. Um, and so their main skill that they felt that they had was cooking. So they realized that they could make papadams because papadams are one thing that are really, they're tasty. Every family likes to have papadams at home, um, except papadams are such a pain to make. And so they felt like they could use their skills to make papadams um, and uh, sell those to stores. So that was the market need that they found. And so these women, these seven women got together uh, on their building's terrace and they started rolling papadams and drying them. And then what they decided though, was that they were never gonna take charity. They borrowed um, the equivalent of $150 today. Um, and they started rolling these papadams um, and they started selling them to shops. And very soon, right? Um, this group grew from seven to 25 uh, over the span of 300 over the span of a year they became 300 women who no longer fit on the building's terrace so today uh, they have a whole setup right to be able to continue doing this and what's amazing is um, they have 45,000 women who are all part of this who all share in profits and losses equally because they never want to take charity because they really want to have a dignified living so they have this whole operational setup there where um, they have buses that drive all these um, member sisters meaning all these women who are co-owners they drive these member sisters to centers where they pick up the dough that needs to be rolled then the member sisters go back home, they roll the papadams, uh, dry them out. The next day, these buses pick them up and then they drop off the papadams that they've rolled, they get paid for what they rolled, and they pick up new dough to go roll the next day. And the cycle continues, right? So it's an incredible operational setup that is very successful. Um, and, you know, it's been going for like 60 years. So you wonder, okay, how did this happen, right? And how can 45,000 women be equal partners in something and it's actually still running well? It all started with a very clear vision. Um, and it's a vision for a product that was their mechanism for creating the change that they wanted to see in the world. So the change that they wanted to see, right, was um, they wanted to give financial independence to women um, and allow them a way of earning a dignified living. Bapadams were just their product 
their mechanism for bringing about that change. And that's one of the, the key lessons, right? Your product is your mechanism to create change that you want to see. So that was their, the, the product, the Papadams. So if we think about what was their vision, um, you know, we can write it out in a radical vision statement. Today, when women from, um, without, women from poor households who don't have too much of an education want to run the household and educate their kids, they have to depend on their husband's income and therefore cannot influence spending. This is unacceptable because it limits their children's educational prospects and it repeats the cycle of poverty. We envision a world where women become self-sufficient and this leads to their socioeconomic development. We're bringing about this world through high quality papadams uh, and later other consumer goods, but without ever taking charity, right? And so what is important is Lidget's vision isn't just a little slogan. Um, we often confuse having a tagline or a slogan, but their vision is so deeply internalized. Every woman in that organization really deeply knows that vision. And that's really what their vision is about. So once you've defined your vision, right, that's only the first step. You really have to translate that into every element of your product. And this is what's amazing to me in Lidget's case. Every aspect of their product, right? Uh, the fact that all of their puppetums are made by hand instead of being uh, automated in factories, it's all based on a very clear vision. So that vision is, is comes true because of uh, a strategy. And here's their strategy. The easy to remember mnemonic for a good strategy is radical or RDCL, which is thinking about the real pain points. Um, in this case, we have to ask the question, you know, what do these women need for a dignified living? Then we say, what's the design? Meaning, what's the solution? How do you deliver on these uh, capabilities? Meaning, what's the special sauce that allows you to power that design? And then finally, logistics, which is how do you actually bring the solution to customers? So in terms of real pain points, right? These women, they had a very strong work ethic, but they just didn't have education. The other real pain point was they were the primary caregivers in the family. Um, and that meant that they really couldn't leave home for very long, right? So they couldn't go work in factories. They had to work from home. So in terms of the design, um, that meant that this whole legit solution of rolling papadums that had to be done at home. Um, the other part of the solution was for these women to be able to uh, really get through the patriarchy and being for them to be able to work, they had to earn everyday wages. Um, they had to be able to share in profits equally and actually bring home a living, right? Uh, so that they could actually leave home and go work. In terms of capabilities, what this meant was, right, because women had to show earnings every day and be able to influence household spending, in terms of capabilities, one of the special things about Lidget and how their business model is structured is they do not give or take credit. Every day when they sell, um, when, when Lidget, you know, distributes papadams to stores, they're paid on an everyday basis. Like whenever they distribute, they get money. They do not give credit. They do not take credit. This means they can pay women every day. The other thing, right, in terms of capabilities and the special sauce is think about the fact that there are 45,000 women who share in profits equally. They had to create a whole new mindset in people. Like it wasn't a mindset about maximizing individual wealth. It was about maximizing group earnings. Um, and then finally, in terms of logistics, right, 
Think about the fact that Lijut is known for, for its quality, but it's 45,000 women who are all rolling papadams at home. You know, quality control would be a nightmare. And so one of the things about logistics was uh, being able to create this decentralized control um, and being able to do decentralized quality control. So that was their radical strategy, right? But very often in organizations, you have a vision and a strategy, but it doesn't show up in decisions. So this is where prioritization comes in. And that means balancing the long-term against the short-term. So when you, know, you wanna actually do this prioritization and, and find the right balance, what I found is it's really helpful to actually define explicitly your X and Y axis. Things that are good for the vision and it helps you survive in the short-term, that's of course ideal. Um, but, you know, very often you have to invest in the vision, which is where you have to do things that are good for the vision, but it may not help you in the short term. If you don't ever invest in the vision, you're always being short term driven. And occasionally you have to take on vision debt. Maybe this is not good for the vision, but it's helping you survive in the short term. But you have to do that really carefully, right? Very occasionally. And so if we think about Lijat, um, and how they actually spread their features across this. Taking a loan, um, they didn't want to take a loan, right? The, the whole idea was to be financially independent, but taking a loan was vision debt. They kind of had to start this way. But to counter that, what they did was in the future, they decided they would share profits and losses equally. They didn't know that they were going to make a profit, right? It could have been a loss. So they were investing in the vision by doing that. This feature of not giving or taking credit it's both helpful for their survival and it's right for the vision. So that was an ideal feature. And then finally, you know, over the years, Lijat has been investing in educating women, giving them financial literacy. All of that is investing in the vision. So they've continued to invest in the vision. And then finally, right, when you're being vision driven, you have to measure what matters. So if I think about how Lijat measures success, you know, all these popular metrics such as revenues, market shares, uh, market share, um, all of that is important, but it's not how uh, Lidget measures success. Lidget's one metric by which they measure success, it's the number of women to whom they give financial independence. And, you know, of course, if their market share drops or if their revenues drop, you know, they're not going to make as many women financially independent. So again, those, those features, uh, sorry, those metrics are all important, but the one metric that for them indicates success is the number of women to whom they give financial independence. So, you know, the, this example of Lijat really shows you that your radical product is an improvable mechanism for engineering the change that you envision, right? And that's how they've been able to give financial independence to 45,000 women. So the example that I showed you so far, right, this was of Lijat where they were founders of a company. But what if you're not founding a company? What if you're working in an organization? How can we be visionaries in our work? Um, and to illustrate that, I want to use the example of Margaret Hamilton. Now, most of us, you know, may not have heard of Margaret Hamilton, uh, but Margaret Hamilton happens to be the one who, um, she coined the term software engineering. Uh, she was the one who saved the moon landing. In fact, you know, three minutes before the moon landing happened, there was an error on board. And it turned out that an astronaut had made a mistake, 
the computer was crashing because um, it was overloaded by some data. And so Margaret's um, code really helped the computer recover from it. She had engineered her code so that when this computer was overwhelmed in terms of uh, memory overload, that it would discard all of this data and just focus on a set of pr uh, a prioritized task list that was important for landing this um, module. You know, even in today's day and age, this would be considered impressive uh, feat of engineering, right? And so my question, I interviewed Margaret Hamilton for the book and I asked her, like, you know, how did you think of this uh, back in the 60s when software engineering was not even a thing? Um, and her answer goes to the vision, but it wasn't NASA's vision, right? NASA's vision was to put man on the moon. Um, but honestly, that is kind of useless for a software engineer that vision is just very broad. So Margaret had a vision for her work and her vision for her work was that she wanted to build ultra reliable software that could recover from every possible error in the process of putting man on the moon. So she had a vision for her work. And so then, you know, she translated that into a set of priorities. And this is what that meant for her, right? Um, in terms of investing in the vision, here's an example of how she invested in the vision. There was one day in lab where her daughter was playing with the simulator and she, her daughter crashed the simulator by pressing two buttons, P0 and P1. And Margaret Hamilton looked at that and she said, oh my God, you know, if my daughter can crash the system, uh, one of the astronauts could do the same. So she pushed NASA to say, you know, we have to fix this. Please allow me to add a fix to this. But NASA said, you know, really you're, you're being a bit too obsessive about error fixing. We will train the astronauts. Astronauts are going to be trained to be perfect. They will not make the same mistake. And so they wrote in the manual saying, do not press P0 and P1 at the same time. And of course, as we know, putting instructions in the manual is the end of all problems in software, right? Um, well, of course, there you go. They were traveling between here and the moon and halfway in between uh, Jim Lowell, who is an astronaut, accidentally pressed P0 and P1 at the same time and the system crashed. Um, and basically it led to their um, ship being just stuck in space and they lost all navigational data. And so they had to incur some vision debt where Margaret and other colleagues had to work urgently to fix this error and upload navigation data. But that led NASA to do something in the ideal quadrant, which is they realized that her vision for building ultra reliable software and recovering from every possible error was so important. And from then on, they gave her carte blanche in terms of implementing her, appro her approach to error correction on all systems. So that was how she translated you know, vision into action. Maybe one last thing that I want to talk about is, you know, how can you apply these ideas anywhere? Because this is not just about applying these ideas if you're a founder or if you're, you know, working for a company. You can create change through anything, including activism, um, your personal life, wherever you see the need for it. And the example I want to give you is one that truly was deeply meaningful and so inspiring for me. Uh, and that's the example of Claudette Colvin. You know, most of us have never heard of Claudette Colvin and history has forgotten her, uh, but her role was so important in the civil rights movement. She was arrested at age 15 in Alabama for defying the bus segregation laws. And by the way, this was nine months before Rosa Parks that, you know, we all know Rosa Parks as the icon of the civil rights movement in the US. But Claudette Colvin, she didn't give up her seat on the bus 
Um, and I asked Claudette, I was just so honored to interview her. I asked her, you know, you weren't even an adult. You knew the risks of what you were doing. How did you refuse to give up your seat, given everything you knew? Uh, and her answer to me was really centered in the vision. You know, what she said was, I wanted a world where we could all partake in that same American dream. Um, and she was tired of adults complaining about it, but then not doing anything about it. And so driven by this vision, she actually did something about it. It affected her everyday actions, right? Uh, and so the way she invested in the vision was by not giving up her seat. But, you know, even when I interviewed with her, she was very honest. She said that was an impromptu decision. Just in that moment, I wanted people to know that this wasn't right. And that's why she didn't give up her seat. But what truly showed her investing in the vision was the fact that you know, she was one of the four plaintiffs in Broder versus Gale, which was the Supreme Court case that overturned segregation um, on buses. And it was you know, a monumental uh, case that made change uh, and, and was a big piece of the civil rights movement. What was you know, even more of an investment in the vision from my perspective was that you know, this was nine months before Rosa Parks. And yet she never became the icon of the civil rights movement, right? And even that was vision driven because when I asked her about it, um, you know, she said, she explained to me why Rosa Parks had to be that civil rights movement icon because uh, Rosa Parks was accepted by both blacks and whites alike. She was from an upper middle-class family or middle-class family, whereas uh, Claudette Colvin was seen as this rebel teenager from a lower uh, socioeconomic status. And so, Rosa Parks really was the icon who could take the spark and make it, you know, into a flame. And so, you know, what truly was so meaningful for me, uh, and this was like my dream come true, is Claudette Colvin holding a copy of Radical Product Thinking um, and just, you know, this, this sharing in this view that we can really systematically create change in the world. Um, so, that is my message for you. We can really systematically create change in the world by thinking through vision, strategy, priorities, execution and measurement, a new culture, and bring people with us on the journey. And this means that, you know, we don't have to rely on just a few rare leaders, which is where I started, right? You don't have to rely on just the Steve Jobs and Elon Musk creating change in the world. Every one of us can create vision-driven products to bring about the change we want to see in the world. And so Radical Product Thinking is in bookstores. Uh, you can also get the free toolkit from radicalproduct.com. And please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Thank you. Thank you, Harika. Thank you so much for this so inspiring and, and strong uh, presentation. Uh, congratulations. So I think we all should clap a little bit, maybe virtually. Thank you. Thank you.